welcome to the July 2015 Security Management Podcast. I'm your host, Assistant Editor Holly Gilbert Stowell. This month, we speak to the editors of Security Management about the stories they covered for our July issue. News and Trends editor Mark Tarallo tells us about the Federal Emergency Management Agency's response to Hurricane Sandy and recent developments surrounding homeowners' insurance claims. Assistant editor Lily Chapa explains the dilemma employers are facing now that the recreational or medical use of marijuana, or both, has been legalized in 23 states and the District of Columbia. But first, a federal judge has given preliminary approval to a settlement of a class action lawsuit brought by Target customers against the retailer following a massive data breach in 2013. Legal Report editor Megan Gates tells us more. Hi, Megan. Welcome to the podcast. Hi, Holly. Thanks for having me. This month, you wrote about a class action lawsuit brought against Target after a data breach that compromised millions of customers' payment card and personal information. Tell us more about the details of the suit. Well, as you probably know, during the 2013 holiday season, Target disclosed that hackers had stolen credit and debit card information for approximately 40 million of its customers. Target later reported that along with the financial data that was compromised, hackers also obtained personal information, including email and mailing addresses, from 70 million to 100 million people. Further details later emerged that Target had been alerted by its computer security system to suspicious activity in its networks, but decided to ignore the alert and allowed the breach to continue. Customers that were affected by the breach originally filed three class action suits against Target in December 2013. Two of those were in California and one was filed in Oregon. Since then, 140 additional lawsuits have been filed against the retailer by cardholders, banks, and shareholders. Recently, U.S. District Court Judge Paul A. Magnuson gave preliminary approval to settle one of the class action lawsuits for $10 million. What are individuals involved in the suit and Target required to do moving forward? Well, the settlement allows individuals affected by the breach to be awarded up to $10,000 each in damages. They have to fill out a form and submit it via website or postal mail to make their claim and prove that unauthorized charges were made to their credit cards. This form includes questions asking individuals if they used a credit or debit card at a U.S. Target store, if they received notice that their personal information had been compromised, and if they have documentation to support their claim for reimbursement. Additionally, individuals need to show that they invested time in addressing fraudulent charges and that they incurred costs from correcting their credit report because of higher interest rates or fees. Under the proposed settlement, Target is required to appoint a chief information officer, which it did last summer. It also has to set up protocols for responding to online security threats and provide data security training for its employees. Target is also responsible for paying up to $6.75 million in legal fees for the plaintiffs. While Judge Magnuson gave preliminary approval for the settlement, customers can continue to file objections to the terms before a final hearing in November. However, even if the settlement is approved, Target still faces claims from three major credit card companies and investigations by the Federal Trade Commission, the Securities and Exchange Commission, and other state and federal agencies. Well, thank you so much, Megan, for stopping by today. Thanks for having me, Holly. The Federal Emergency Management Agency has decided to reopen and re-review claims submitted by homeowners who were affected by Hurricane Sandy. News and Trends editor Mark Tarallo joins us to explain. Hi, Mark. Thanks for joining us. Hi, Holly. You write that the Federal Emergency Management Agency, or FEMA, recently announced it would reopen and review relief claims by homeowners who were affected by Hurricane Sandy. Why did the agency make this move, and what are the implications? The agency made the move basically under pressure from a few sources. There were some allegations that either the engineering companies who were doing the disaster relief reports or the insurance companies that hired them had produced 
induced false or altered reports in order to reduce payouts to homeowners. After those allegations, the 60 Minutes investigative news program did a report where they interviewed some high-up FEMA officials, and one FEMA official, the Deputy Associate Administrator for Insurance, he basically did concede that he had seen evidence of some fraudulent reports by unlicensed engineers. Once those reports came out, some federal lawmakers pressured FEMA and said that their constituents were complaining that this process was not fair and that a lot of the constituents did not get the relief they deserved. So there was actually a few sources of pressure and FEMA decided, given that pressure, to react proactively. And they announced that they were going to reopen the process and they mailed all the Sandy claimants the notification that there was going to be a new process and the opportunity for review. So, Mark, what are the specifics of the allegations that caused the agency to decide to reopen these claims? Yeah, the specifics involve quite a large deal of money, actually, because you have 141,800 homeowners who filed under the program. The maximums for relief are 250000 for property damage and 100000 for contents of the residence or dwelling. So these are real substantial money claims, and there's over 141000 so there's a lot of money at stake. And And as far as the specifics of the allegations themselves, it's real interesting because it's a little bit unclear what the motive would be. The insurance and engineering firms have denied any wrongdoing. And their argument is that they really have no financial incentive to cheat because they don't receive more federal dollars if claims are kept low. So the kind of mystery here is why would these companies companies want claims to be kept low? Why would they want to lowball people? It seems to be clear, and FEMA officials have admitted it, that there's evidence of fraudulence here, but the motive is still unclear. So that's something that the agency's looking into, other people are looking into, and that's still the mystery that has to be solved. So as you mentioned, insurance programs limit $250,000 for property damage and $100,000 for dwelling contents to award to the homeowners. These numbers actually fall far short of actual damages according to those pursuing claims. So what do homeowners do to make up for this discrepancy and what issues can ensue? Yeah, interviewed someone who had been talking to a lot of homeowners, and there's a lot of consternation among them. Basically, as you mentioned, you have these program limits of 250000 for property damage and 100000 for dwelling contents. So what homeowners will do is they'll often take out not just one insurance policy, but a second insurance policy. So if there's a tremendous amount of damage for a homeowner, the 250000 property damage limit is reached and the hundred thousand dollar dwelling contents limit is reached then the second insurance policy will kick in it'll only kick in when those limits are reached and so obviously you have people with million dollar beach homes right so the limits kick in and then the second insurance policy pays out so the problem for them is if the claims are lowballed 
and the limits are never reached, then the second policy will not kick in. So it's basically a waste of money on their point. So they have some real complaints on that issue. And then the second issue that homeowners are having a lot of problems with is that if you do have a lot of damage and your relief is far short of what your damage is, you often kind of stuck there because it's really hard to sell a severely damaged home. And then you can get things like a small business administration loan to try to fix up your house again. But then you have to make those payments on top of the money you're kicking in for the repairs. So you get people who say, if I don't get adequate relief, I'm completely stuck here. I can't sell. I'm just I'm just uh, financially in a bad place. And you write that lawmakers from New York and New Jersey are becoming involved. So what are they saying? And what is the outlook for this issue overall? The lawmaker argument and some of the senators from both New Jersey and New York, as well as the members of Congress from those states, have been involved. They've been petitioning FEMA to reopen the process. Their main argument is that the flood insurance program should not be run like a private business that is trying to maximize profits. The government, which runs the flood insurance program, should not take the position of, we're going to try to minimize payouts wherever we can. The government should be taking the position of, let's have the most fair program we can. If you can show that your damage is severe, then the relief will be very significant. If you can't, you can't. It should be trying to, as one senator said, make people whole, not try to minimize payouts. Great, Mark. Thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks, Holly. Finally, marijuana legalization is becoming more common throughout the United States, which poses a challenge for employers. Assistant Editor Lily Choppa sits down to explain how organizations are approaching this challenge. Hi, Lily. Thanks for joining us. Hey, Holly. In this month's cover story, you write that 23 states have now legalized the medical or recreational use of marijuana or both. What does the federal law say, and how does that present a challenge for employers? Under federal law, marijuana is still classified as a Schedule I substance, which puts it on the same level as heroin or LSD. This means that under federal law, it's illegal in all forms, can't be researched, sold, prescribed, or used in any way. Of course, this directly contradicts the laws of those 23 states that have made marijuana legal. The federal government has agreed to generally leave these states alone in regards to pot use, but if, say, an employee files a lawsuit against an employer for a marijuana-related issue, federal law will typically prevail. This has become a murky legal area for employers. So tell us more about how this issue of marijuana legalization in some states is affecting pre-employment screening. In order to stay on the right side of the law, most states are still testing job candidates for drugs, but only after they are offered a job. Washington, D.C., which has legalized recreational marijuana use, has passed a law specifically outlawing pre-employment drug screening to avoid discrimination against legal marijuana users. You also say that the Americans with Disabilities Act plays into all of this. Can you explain? Well, a number of lawsuits have stemmed from medical marijuana users being discriminated against in the workplace. Adhering to the ADA, which prohibits discrimination against employees with disabilities, has become a legal sticking point in states where medical marijuana is legalized. Although the act requires employers to make reasonable accommodations to employees with disabilities, the ADA does not explicitly protect employees who use illegal drugs. So if an employee takes their company to court, precedent has shown that the judges use the federal classification of marijuana, which protects employers from suits like this. 
Although employers do not have to provide a reasonable accommodation for employees who use medical marijuana, they do have to provide assistance to employees who come forward under the ADA's safe harbor provision. For example, if an employee comes forward before a drug test and admits that he has an addiction to medical marijuana, the employer must allow him to enter a substance use treatment program without negative repercussions. Finally, your article states that employers should clarify their workplace policy on marijuana use to prevent any confusion. How should organizations go about this? Marijuana use and at-work intoxication is a gray area. As I mentioned, medical marijuana users can use a drug outside of work hours and off the premises, but can still test positive even if they are not under the influence. Some employers may consider implementing an under-the-influence policy that treats pot like alcohol. Employees can't imbibe on the job and cannot come to work inebriated. Other organizations may want to stick to a zero-tolerance policy in which employees will be disciplined if they test positive for marijuana, whether they are currently under the influence or not. Experts warn employers to consider this carefully. Say you have one employee who smoked a joint on Friday night after work and another guy who drank a fifth of whiskey the night before and may be really hungover the next day. They both come in on Monday morning and you do a random drug and alcohol test. The guy who smoked Friday night is going to test positive and the guy who is hungover may not technically be impaired but his head is pounding. Which guy do you want operating your equipment? This is something employers should consider. Thank you so much, Lily. We look forward to hearing further coverage as this issue develops. Thank you, Holly. That does it for this month's podcast. Tune in next month for another edition of Security Management Highlights. Bye-bye.